Welcome to the Digital Brand Builder Podcast, where we bring you the best growth strategies from the world's experts to help build your business fast. And now, here's your host, Mark Fidelman. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Digital Brand Building Podcast. Today, I'm very excited to learn about something new, something I don't know, and that is uh, implementing what they're calling humanistic marketing practices. And joining me today is Justin Foster and Emily Sikorsi. And uh, today, I have never done this before, but we're going to talk to two people and we're going to try and keep it moving and we're going to try and keep it light and, uh, and fun. And as always, I promise you, you're going to learn something. So with that, uh, Justin, will you go first and uh, introduce yourself and, and give us your background, please? Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having us on. Uh, so uh, my name is Justin Foster, as you said, and I am the co-founder of Root and River. Um, my background is actually, if I go back to the beginning, is in sales. I'm one of the few branding guys that I know that came out of corporate sales. Um, and at times back in the day when I was starting a couple of agencies and whatnot made me feel insecure and now I'm proud of it. Um, that's a good place to come from mm -hmm. and, uh, have been self-employed, um, since 2003. And like I said, owned a couple of agencies, then was the co-founder of a tech startup that went to acquisition and then, uh, met Emily six and a half years ago and found a lot of simpatico with, life philosophy, um, the way branding should work, um, the, this term we say being human in just life and in business. And um, in 2015, launched Root and River. Okay, Emily, yeah. your turn. Yeah. Right. So I grew up in the Southwest um, and I began my career as a journalist and I spent eight and a half years as a journalist and publisher here. And so really diving into language, storytelling, and um, how other people shape their own narratives. And I've always been an avid reader and a, obviously a writer. So was really intrigued by that and then uh, made a move into PR and worked in PR for a couple of years and learned a little bit more about business strategy and as well as sort of brought the, the agency that I worked for up to date with social media. Um, spent a lot of time early on working in uh, blogging and building communities. And then I, I went out on my own, began my own company, and uh, started doing social strategy, some ghostwriting, a little bit of everything. I had quite a, a toolbox by that point of abilities. And, uh, and then finally began doing brand strategy for a human behavioral research company, global company, and eventually became the, the vice president of, of the brand, um, brand and marketing there. And that's where Justin and I, that's when Justin and I uh, paths crossed. And yeah, as Justin mentioned, when we, we met six and a half years ago, there was this uh, spark between us, this alchemy of understanding how people work and how they express themselves. And this great injustice in so many businesses that these entrepreneurs or leaders have all of this passion. They sacrifice so much for their businesses and for their brands, but they are missing, in many cases, the ability to articulate the soul of their brand, what drives them, their motivation. And in the process of trying to do that, they make it so complicated. Um, 
just not being maybe well-versed at language or not well-versed at taking that deep in, intrinsic dive inside of themselves to figure out what it really is that drives them. And we felt that that was our gift to be able to bring that simplicity, clarity, and articulation to clients. And so Root and River has been sort of an adventure ever since. Uh, we've worked with over 200 clients and we're really passionate about inspiring leaders to go inward to uncover and articulate the soul of the brand. I know how important that is, but I also know how difficult that is. It's almost like you're doing a, a deep dive. It's, I, I, what I liken it to is you know, doing a deep dive on yourself, and it's really hard to do that without uh, the help of an expert. And I, I think that's where you come in. But I'm sure people are still wondering what it is that you're talking about. So when we talk about humanistic marketing practices and going deep within to figure out you know, what your brand is and what it represents, what do you mean by that? Great question. Yes, it can be. It sounds very esoteric, but it's we're this blend of being spiritual and very practical. So what this means is doing um, that deep dive work to understand what are your core beliefs? What are the deepest things inside of what we term your soil of soul? So those are the things, again, that drive you, your passions, your disappointments, your hurt, your pain, your dreams, your hopes. We dig into that soil and we help our clients articulate or our clients who go through our course we help them uncover what those core beliefs are. From there, they also work on their mission. And we don't mean mission statements. We hate them. We think they're boring in most cases. They're long run-on sentences that don't tell people anything. We define mission as the thing you're here to do that only you can do. And when you have that mission clear in your mind, it usually has a direct line of sight into the business that you're already working in, but it connects something inside of people so that they have this clarity and their confidence is built. Then we move on and we get into message. And message is really not what other people want to hear, which has commonly been how it's perceived. It's like finding the right thing to say so everyone loves me. In our practice, it's about saying what your heart wants to say to the world. And we do this with the way that we encourage people to, to find it is to sort of remove yourself from that approval mechanism that we all have built in as humans and think about and get real with what really needs to be said. And this is more important today than ever. Um, to have a message that stands out, you've really got to come from within, be, be human to yourself, and then that authenticity, that genuine feeling conveys to the audience and that's what breaks through all the noise that exists okay and uh justin do you have anything to add to that yeah just from a you know the term humanistic marketing is, is for us was born out of the fact that well if you have an intrinsic brand if you do all the things that it, that emily just mentioned to get to this place well then how does that change how you show up in the world so we kind of like to look at inhumane marketing practices first. So uh, one of those is the use of FUD or fear, uncertainty, and doubt, uh, manipulating people's fears. You know, mo most of the marketing, pers persuasive marketing tactics that have been used over the last, you know, five or six decades were created by Sigmund Freud's nephew, who was able to say, hey, if you do these things, you're going to trigger a psychological response. We view that to be manipulative. Um, Another inhumane thing is to be, pretend to be something that you're not. And then certainly there's the inhum, you know, being inhumane to your, your culture, to your people, to your, 
your community, your clients. So um, the idea of humanistic marketing is that it's, it just starts with humans connecting with humans. So we often say this, and this goes back to my sales background, is that companies don't buy anything. People do. Um, and certainly the companies have people that represent the interests of the company, but it ultimately boils down to a human um, that you're in relationship with in, uh, in a way that produces the, the desired behavior or the um, elements that we're talking about. And this dives into our, our mutual background, Emily more than me, but a mutual background in hum, human behavior. Um, and then just the other two, two or three, just so that you know what they are, Mark, is, uh, is this idea that transparency is a behavior. It's an action. It's not the last thing you do. It's the first thing you do. Uh, which changes the rules of PR and uh, significantly um, mastering storytelling uh, being a master storyteller as a brand is humanistic marketing because we are wired for story. It's one of the oldest parts of being a human is the wiring for story. And then finally, just being the, the courage to own your uniqueness. Our, our, one of our mantras is show the world who you truly are. Um, and the, tr the truth um, is still the best brand strategy. If you can go be who you truly are and you're not, you're not overly performative, you're not a construct, something magical happens around trust and um, the, 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 the spirit and science of branding. So what, let me ask you something though that uh, has been kind of on the forefront, especially now, uh, given that we're in a COVID situation and obviously uh, you know, racism is at the top of the agenda for most politicians and, and a lot right. of corporations. What do you recommend companies do in terms of messaging or branding or taking a political stand in this environment and future environments? Yeah, great question. We recommend that they look to their, their beliefs, their standards first. And what we suggest is that they, they take those values, beliefs, however they've turned them, which in most cases, businesses sort of set them to the side and then operate. But you take them out, you look at them, you look at the way that you're operating already, and then you layer on the current realities of racial injustice, um, of a global pandemic, and you see where your beliefs are being lived out very well, very clearly. And then tell stories around that, speak to that, share about that. Um, again, Justin mentioned that transparency is an action. And so the market wants to hear, your audience wants to hear where you stand. So if you are not taking, if you're not telling them, then they are wondering and they're losing confidence in you as a brand, quite to be blunt. But you don't wanna make a statement that is not based in reality. So that's what we would suggest. Well, aren't you, aren't companies worried that if they do take a stand that they might be canceled? Well, there's that element, but I think there's a couple of things to it. Is one is if it, if it's, there's there's a lot to be said for sincerity. So Nike is you know is a ex great example of the sincerity of intention. Like this is something that they've talked about for years, so it's not it's not uh, it's not new. The second thing is 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 if you're if you're your, your brand, your reputation as a brand is around doing the right thing of integrity, um, of, of doing things that are uh, in the public interest, um, then you're good. What, what 
to your point, what will get you is virtue signaling. If it's a little bit like, um, and, and, and this is hyperbole here, but a little bit like turning Memorial Day, which is supposed to honor the people that have died for the country, uh, into a mattress sale or a truck sale. Um, that disingenuousness or that, um, again, that performative nature of that, that's what will get you. Um, it, it, that, that's what will get you. The other element of cancel is um, you can't really be canceled for taking a stand around something that is a, let's call it a universal truth. Um, you're not going to get canceled for taking a stand against racism, for example. You're going to have people um, like Dick Sporting Goods did, which when they pulled guns out of their stores, you're going you're gonna to have a bunch of clients or a bunch of customers that don't shop with you anymore, but that's different. And my final thought related to this particular topic, which is one of the fav favorite things right now that we love to talk about, is uh, social pressure is market pressure. Those didn't used to be the same thing, but now they are. And if there's social pressure in a particular area, brand it behooves a brand to listen to that because the marketplace is telling them what they what they they're telling them what is important to them. So you can have social pressure from a very left-wing or right-wing group that represents 0.01% of the population, how do you know as a brand to distinguish the signal through the noise? I think it goes back to, you know, you obviously have to evaluate where that social pressure is coming from, but you also have to evaluate what you truly stand for. Uh, we wouldn't advocate, you know, making a statement just to make a statement that's insincere and will be Criti you know, criticized harshly. Um, but you don't have to respond to pressure that is not in alignment with who you are as a company. Um, well, let, let's, take, let's take a specific example. Right. So Uncle Ben's rice and Aunt Jemima syrup, they both now removed that character. Uh, and these were based on positive characters. And uh, so was that the result of social pressure? Is that a result of their beliefs or was that a big, big mistake? No, I think that was an uh, update, yeah. uh, a long, probably a long overdue update with the, um, with the progress of the world. And so well, Aunt Jemima was a, a very successful, the first black female millionaire, very successful entrepreneur. And right. it was not meant as anything but a compliment to her. Yeah, right. So I, my take on this, Mark, is um, leaders are going to make mistakes because we've never been here before, just like a bunch of mistakes have been made um, with COVID and the COVID response. It's um, making the mistake is part of how you learn. And so, you know, if we were advising Aunt Jemima, we would have said, you know, tell your story. We wouldn't have said swap it out. So I, I would say that there's an element, and again, this goes back to your, your root kind of your root belief and then your behavior as a leader is if you are reactive, you're going to be chasing, uh, you know, social pressure. You're going to be, you're going to constantly be reacting to it as opposed to doing like um, Mark Benioff in Salesforce has done where he just comes out and said, this is what we believe in or Dan Price with gravity payments, who has become an advocate for, um, you know, uh, an advocate for dealing with income disparity between, you know, executives and employees, who's um, those guys, they are, they are not responding to 
something and then trying to figure out a way to placate an audience. They are just living what they believe. If you're a leader that hasn't done that work, you're going to make some mistakes. You're going to make, you're going to make some mistakes. And I think that's all part of the process. The other example here is what's happening with the Washington uh, NFL team. Yeah. Red you know, yeah. And, and that's a, that's a, another situation where market pressure um, in social pressure is the same thing because FedEx and Nike um, basically told Snyder, uh, you need to take care of this. And now that is not out of character for Nike or FedEx to take stands like that. They have done that their entire brand existence. It's just more obvious now when it's something that is extra sensitive. Yeah. But I, I, they, and I'm not going to belabor this because I, I think you guys have done a very good job of, of answering this because I know this is on everyone's mind because I hear it all the time. Um, but is it current market pressure? Is it because of uh, a very heightened sense of, of racism at this point because of you know what's transpired? Or do you think it's a long-term decision that is the right one? Which one? Uh, just the Redskins, changing the Redskins. Oh, yeah. I think it's, I mean, it goes back to something that Doug Williams said years ago about it, you know, Super Bowl winning quarterback that played for them. He said it's, it's a matter of decency. This is, yeah, this and, isn't a new issue. This has been around for quite a while. Yeah, this has been going on for a long time. There just wasn't enough pressure because there wasn't enough, the social pressure was not enough to get Snyder to do anything about it. Um, when FedEx, his partner, his co you know, one of the majority or minority owners, um, Fred Smith in the Washington team, you know, they when they started talking about like, hey, we're not gonna we, we're not gonna be behind this anymore. And I think, and I'm just gonna play off Mark something that Emily said a minute ago. We have to leave room for evolution. No one, for example, you go back 30 years ago, how many companies had a um, had a benefits available to same-sex relationships? Didn't that just wasn't a thing? Or how many, you know, you go back and so there has to be room. And this is why we talk about in between the two, you, the two extremes that you mentioned is that there is that if you're living your brand according to your values, there is no left wing or right wing. There's just the right thing to do based off of what you believe in. And so what we teach our clients to do is most of the time just transcend the ideological discussions because most of them are sort of binary and temporary and kind of useless. You have to know who you are and what you believe in, and then you can advance from there. That's the starting point. It just seems like uh, Chick-fil-A, right? They had those values for the longest time, and, and now they seem to be transforming themselves based on social or market pressure. And yeah. it's interesting to see how that, that all works out. I mean, they're really going yeah. against their values, you know, original values, to placate um, the marketplace. I, I don't even know if it's a marketplace. I think it's yeah. more the social because yeah. they were very successful. They're, they were not, it's not like their business dipped, but it, it appears to me that yeah. they're bowing to social pressure. And I'm just wondering if that's the way it's headed. I think they're, I mean, I don't know those guys, but I think they're evolving to re current realities. Um, there's, you know, there's certain realities that it's similar to NASCAR getting rid of the, the Confederate battle flag. I mean, that's a, it's a re that's a reality that, that that is um, a symbol, a uh, very a symbol of hatred to a large portion of the American population. Um, 
I think I think too, and this is a you know fascinating thing about this this nuance here. Like, where do we go? And I think it starts with what we would ask any leader, especially if you're like the CEO or you're the face of the brand. Yep. Is the 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 second question is how is our company going to respond? The first question is what do you believe? Right. What do you believe? And if you get that part, Mark, the rest of it is mostly courage and execution. Yep. Okay. Um, I think we belabored this enough, but I could tell you it's on everyone's mind. If you're, Definitely. yeah, that's fun. Thank you. Thanks for bringing it up. All right. So let's move to you've defined. Well, actually, no. Let's start with how do you define your values? What what kind of exercise do people go through to order to to figure that out? And I know we can't lay it all out here, or else you wouldn't be in business. <laughs> how do people start to think about this? So one of the ways that we suggest that people begin to tackle this is, um, first of all, just in a very practical sense, this isn't something that's done in the seams. So setting aside time, dedicated time um, to, to dig into it is fantastic. Having a, somebody help you with that process is even better because as you mentioned at the top, Mark, it's incredibly difficult to do on your own. Um, but without all that, the, or with you know, definitely setting aside time, maybe not having a facilitator, what you want to do is sit down and do a little bit of an inventory around the idea of what have I always known to be true to me, but was not taught to me, right? So we wanna go back to the inherent you, the person who existed in the world before the world kind of imposed itself upon you, and sort of digging into some of the the ideals or the values that you have held and i we recommend that you don't really try to think of them first as values again story and the stories that we tell ourselves are really a great place to start so going back in your memory to maybe childhood or maybe young, young adulthood what were the things that you railed against as a teenager or what were the things that as a child maybe in grade school that you got in trouble for um, a lot of times what we believe can, it, when, once it is challenged, that becomes a formative memory. And by looking at and talking through or journaling through on your own, some of those early stands that you took, there can be uncovered some of these core beliefs. So that's one exercise that we would, we would suggest and we walk some of our clients through. Through that, beliefs like defiance, which is one of our core beliefs as a company, uh, love may be revealed, whatever it is for you. But the idea is to get into the story first and let it tell you what you believe. Hmm. Okay. There's an interesting, Mark, there's an interesting thing that happens when we do this work with a, a team, like an executive team. So when we work with a, a company that's, you know, got more than, you know, like it's not a small business, say a mid-sized company, we work, we do the, we do the branding work as far as this type of stuff with the entire executive team because everyone's in branding. Um, and one of the things that we do is we have them do that exercise with a few others that Emily mentioned. And um, what happens is the commonalities start to pop up. So we don't, you know, there's that classic sort of facilitator thing, which is everybody makes a list of all the values they believe in and then they circle the one that's most important to them. We go the other way, which is go inward first and find out what you believe and then express it. And we've done, I don't know, probably close to 100, 125 like group root sessions as we call them. And we all, and two things always come out of this. One is, is that there's this kind of release of delight. Like, oh, I didn't know you believe that too. I, wow, look at that. Everyone on the executive team believes in, um, believes in uh, uh, respect or, or something like that. 
The other thing that happens, and this is this in some organizations, this happens all the time, but in some organizations, when we do that work, somebody resigns. There, there, there's a value misalignment or a belief misalignment that they're like, I can't, I don't, you know, there's something off. And that's why that, that leader felt like they couldn't be there. What that does is it strengthens the culture where you don't have like-mindedness because that's, you know, groupthink, but you have um, these things that we call brand, we call standards, which is just the, this, the way we treat each other inside of the organization. So it's all fascinating to watch it unfold for a group. Hmm. Okay. And at the end of this exercise, how do they begin to implement these changes? Well, that's where those standards come in. So at the end of the exercise, we have five core beliefs typically, and then we begin to examine the culture and what already exists and determine these standards, which are usually manifest as short sentences, maybe three to five words, almost mantras, Mark, that really articulate the culture of the company and the way essentially they're living out their beliefs. Um, so for an ex as an example, one of our core values is defiance. And the standard for us that we hold ourselves to and we expect of our team is uh, to find the flow and forget the formula. We're not formulaic. We always want to differentiate ourselves and we always want to find a new way of doing things. So that is what we hold ourselves to. So an organization will then come away with this set of five standards. And sometimes there are there are sayings that are already being used quite a bit within the culture. And again, it's more of an archeological dig to really uncover what's already there, the brand that's already there, and then just match it up with a bit more intentionality so that they then those standards can be used both internally and externally to the audience to describe the culture and storytelling um, in recognition for employees or for, for customers. So a lot of times these standards also apply to, to what a company is looking for in its, in its partners and within its clients. And I think that um, the other thing to just a little quick one here to point out related to this like application that you asked about it, Mark, is that, um, when you, um, well, our, it goes back to our definition of a brand. Our definition of a brand is how other people experience what you believe. And that you could be you personally and your personal brand as a leader or you collectively in the organization. It's how other people experience what you believe. So when you, and we know this, that behaviors are always connected to beliefs. There's, that's, that's um, you know, science that, the, 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 those behaviors that you have as a leader and as a collective behaviors of an organization, they come from somewhere. They don't just come out of the you know, atmosphere. And so when you understand these things, then you can really get into how you show up in the world. And that's where messaging in particular, the, and when we say messaging, we're really talking about the language of the brand or the ontological expression of the brand. Okay. And you know, I, I kind of liken these things to personal relationships or dating. When somebody has their core values and their beliefs, right? A lot of times it's not expressed properly, or a lot of times you've got to dig it out of people. Well, the, the brand doesn't have that that luxury. So, how does the brand then express those values and and what they represent and what they believe in to the outside world, or at least to their customers? I think that's what they're 
primarily concerned with, or they should be. Definitely. So that's that's where storytelling comes in. Um, well, first of all, I think there's a there's a big kind of gimme that a lot of brands miss is just sharing what your values are. Um, you know, take take a uh, a month's worth of of content and look at how you can create high value content, whether it's blog posts, it's video posts, it's speaking engagements that really focus on the company's values and how those beliefs are played out in behaviors. I mean, do that externally with your clients, share that in um, collateral materials. Um, that's, that's number one. And then number two would be tell stories around how you lived up to, to this value. I think a great example of this is Southwest Airlines. Um, they, one of their core values is love. Um, they, of course, they carry that into their external messaging, but they also show that. It, uh, one of their great uh, examples of this is on their social media feed. Um, during the height of COVID, they, they posted a picture of a whole empty airplane except one little tiny head in the back. And the, the uh, post was about, you know, we're still here to serve, serve you, um, even if our planes are mostly empty. In this case, we are taking a healthcare worker to New York to help with the outbreak there. And so they're demonstrating their love for their customers and how their customers are also giving that love to the world. So there's so many ways to, to express this, but definitely don't want to kind of hold those back. You want to be forward with your audience on, on what your beliefs are. Okay. And are there, is this on social channels? Is this through the press? Is it uh, across the board? How are these things? Yeah, what are the channels? All of them. Um, now, each channel is going to have their own application of how that goes through. But we build brand language around conversations because conversations are the crucible that make a brand live or die. Um, you can have a really expensive, shiny ad campaign, and if the language is off, it doesn't matter. Or you can have a grassroots campaign with great language, and it works really well. So. Um, so when we when we our starting point is um and it kind of depends if they're b2c or b2b but let's take a b2b company the first people the first group that we work with on understanding how to use this language is the sales team or the or the or the channel management or whoever is market facing because they're the ones that are on the phones on the zooms you know someday maybe back in the conference rooms um uh, having those conversations then there's certainly a level of integration into websites. So for example, one of the foundational language elements that we have is what's called a root belief. And that's the first thing that's out of your mouth. It's the first thing that's on the hero image of your website. It's in the, your bios on social media. The root belief goes everywhere. And then the second element is then around category. And category ownership is a, um, it's a brand essential in our, in our work. Um, because a category allows you to create a space in consciousness that didn't exist before, which is an extraordinarily powerful place to be. Example, Elvis Presley, long dead, is still the king of rock. Still the king of rock and roll. When you ask any musician, anybody who's the king of rock, they say Elvis Presley. That's an example of owning your category. And then the third one, the third thing that starts to get infused is um, your, your differentiators. The, the things that you're that you're speaking to that to the, your audience that are things that make you truly different. So when you combine, when you look at all the scenarios where okay, we got to get our root belief out there, we got to get our category name out there, and we got to get our differentiators out there. 
then you get into the sort of omni-channel view of, well, what's the best way to say those things with using the foundational language? And that depends on, you know, company to company to company. A lot of it depends on brand voice and kind of the personality of the brand that they, that they are. Okay. And um, I guess when you are a company looking at this and, and looking back at what, what you've just said, it seems like it's pretty complicated. Is, is it extremely hard to go through this process or is it uh, easy? Where, where does it lie in the, the difficulty spectrum? Because I, I know a lot of companies don't do it. Yeah, that's a good point. A lot of companies don't. I think the perception is it's very difficult. Um, I think the most difficult thing is deciding to do it and opening up enough to, to let it be fruitful. But once you're, once you're involved in it, and then once you can get through some of the deeper dives, it begins to materialize very quickly and become way more solid and tangible and easier. Our, our clients, regardless of their size, huge companies, small clients, they, they, they tell us afterwards, now it's, it's so much easier to market, to know. I always know what to say. I have greater confidence when I'm talking about what I do, about business, about the brand. Um, once you've done that deep work, which tends to be a little bit more challenging, it, it becomes a lot more viscous to have those conversations when you know the language that you're using is is true it's conveying a truth that you hold dear and it is also differentiated and that's what we work towards in these sessions so difficult at the beginning and much easier on a long tail yeah because i could and i could see how um individuals that are in the company that are responsible for marketing or social media or even sales if they had a code of ethics, uh, so to speak, or a, a code of branding, then uh, they, they would know how to speak to people and, and what language to use and the messaging and the storytelling. So instead of in, inventing it on the fly as to what they heard from their manager. So a, a very strong point there. And I know, uh, yeah. Justin, you had something to say, right? Yeah, I was just going to say, Mark, so apology for interrupting. Um, the, the, the key to this, too, is the leadership. Um, so what, you know, there, it's going to be hard. It's heavy lifting. It's chop wood, carry water. Um, it's a boot camp. It's already hard. Um, and to quote uh, Jordan Peterson, life is suffering. Don't make it worse. So intrinsic branding is hard. Don't make it worse. It's hard work. Here's what makes it worse. Lack of courage is a big one. If, if, if your leadership team is passive, if they are... Um, unwilling to be different, um, unwilling to try new things. Um, it's, I mean, it's just, it's going to be a struggle. It's going to be a struggle to brand this way because you have yet to overcome the insecurity that you're okay exactly as you are. Um, the second thing that makes it harder for people to, for brands to implement is when the entire leadership team is not bought in. So that's why we don't just work with the CMO. We work with the entire leadership team to get the brand language, the beliefs, the standards, all the elements of the brand in place first, and everyone has a seat at that table. And if you've got this very compartmentalized, like, well, okay, this is a brand thing, so I'm the CFO or the CTO, whatever, I don't need to be involved, that is going to cause um, pretty significant friction in the implementation because now it just becomes new language for a an ad campaign or something. And that's, that's unsustainable. Yeah. Great point. Um, okay. So we, you, you've worked with a lot of companies going through this exercise and, and making them more human and they're you know, relating their values to the outside world. What is the payoff? 
Um, I think the first payoff is that confidence and that consistency that you gain as a brand when everyone is singing from the same song sheet. Um, what happens then is that your brand is consistently differentiated in the market using the same language, which then gets in, uh, it gets involved in the language of your audience. And so now your brand is taking it, everyone who touches your brand is beginning to to share that brand in a way that's super spreadable and ultimately raises the visibility of the brand. Um, so, and then at a, at a micro level too, having been in the, the shoes of a, a CMO or VP of marketing, when you have to sit down every time for every project and sort of re-engineer the messaging or, or come up with messaging, it takes a tremendous toll on you. It's incredibly difficult to execute. Um, and so execution becomes easier, projects flow more smoothly, and ultimately you, you get differentiation and you get a, a, a larger brand position and presence. And I'd add two more to that, Mark. Um, one is a, a significantly lower cost per customer acquisition. And a lot of people, you know, they think word of mouth is sort of an accident. We think that word of mouth is evidence of a healthy brand. And so if you have to spend money, it, so the, the mantra we have for this is pay for retention, not attention. Um, and so CPC or cost per customer for acquisition is a big one. And another one is just, and this is a, come, sometimes comes as a surprise, is a lower overall marketing budget sometimes. Because you think about in a larger company, the marketing budget, how much of that is experimentation and let's see what, let's see what happens or or you're sort of focus grouping your way to some sort of message. If you know who you are and you know what to say, you got the language right and you got the systems in place, it drives a lot of that experimental cost out of marketing. Um, and all of that net it then goes back to the bottom line. And also, and in, in this is true, pretty much every client of ours in some form has been an increase in leads and sales which as a former sales guy, that's the whole point of marketing is leads and sales. I'd like to make one other point here, Mark, too, for our yeah, clients. Um, I think um, the other benefit that you get if you do this work, particularly now, is that we're moving into a, a very volatile time. Things are going to be unpredictable for a while. We're going to be dealing with crisis for quite a while. And so what you get out of it as well is this, this solid foundation from which to um, – respond to the changes, to the evolutions we were talking about earlier. Uh, it gives you the stable base from which to look to and then take action in alignment with the brand so that you don't have brand fractures down the road when you're, when you're meeting those challenges. Okay. Uh, all very good points. Uh, it's been my experience as well. It also infuses the company with this sense of purpose and mission, which I like, you know, cause they're all on the same page. They all know what they represent. And, um, you know, most people within the organization are bought in, or if they're not, they, they soon exit and you don't want people that aren't bought in anyway. Yep. Uh, so to, so to wrap things up, I have two final questions and, um, I ask everybody these questions. The first one is the hottest digital marketing technology that you would recommend people take a look at. Yeah, mine, um, is sprinkler. Um, I have been impressed with them for a long time as a social media management platform and um, the things that they're, that they're doing. Um, had some experience with them back in the day in the work they're doing with like Verizon and how they, how Verizon was 
one of the first big, big, you know, consumer brands to um, have a, um, a like live response to social media posts. And Sprinkler was instrumental in making that happen. Okay. And, you know, for Sprinkler's got a lot of social tools to kind of measure brand perception. Is that right? Yeah, you have you have the there's a, there's a sort of an uh, you know the big data aspect of what Sprinkler is doing, and I think they've evolved over the years to to where social media management isn't really their like that's a commodity like that's table stakes now, um, and so their their shift in it seems to be in recent years is around um, analysis of or curation of data and relationships like essentially who is paying attention and what are they responding to that is deeper than just, you know, eyeballs or clicks. Okay. Love it. Uh, my last question is who is the most influential person in marketing today? And one of you had said Christopher Lockhead and I, and I don't know if Christopher can, can you uh, kind of give us a little bit of a background on him? Yeah, that was my nomination. Um, uh, and you might have your, uh, might have your own, of course. Um, Chris is never met the man, but I feel like I know him. Chris is the one of the co-authors of Play Bigger, and I would compare um, if Seth Godin is sort of the king of innovation in marketing, then Chris is the king of category design. And his book Play Bigger and his podcast have been very, very influential on how I, how we look at branding from from the lens of essentially the next evolution of positioning which is category design. And so he's, um, in my catalog, he's a rock star. And he's also very direct. You talk about a guy, Mark, that if you want to, you can tell where he stands. He is unapologetically who he is mm -hmm. as a leader. And that's another thing I admire about him too, is that he, we like people that, that don't really pay attention to the line between social and business. Just be who you are. And that's another thing I like about him. Okay. Emily, anything to add? Um, I, I would say, you know, right now I'm, I'm geeking out on Simon Sinek's latest book um, and I, The Infinite Game. And I think what he's talking about there is just, I mean, it was published before COVID, but it is, it's going to be, be the thinking that a lot of brands adopt as they move forward to, to continue to be relevant in the times that we're facing. And uh, Simon's been a, a huge inspiration for us and for me personally. So I, I think... Between he and Seth, those Seth Godin, I think those two are really still producing daily thought-provoking and relevant um, information that helps all of us as marketers and branders. Wonderful. Okay, so we're going to wrap things up. First of all, if you like what you heard today, they have a book coming out called Rooting Up. And where can they get that book? You can get it on Amazon. And okay. yeah. Okay. And then uh, you also have a course. And uh, if you want some private brand coaching, where can they reach you? Rootandriver.com is our website. You'll be able to check out the course there and also our upcoming events and learn a little bit more about how we work. Excellent. That's also going to be in the show notes, everyone. So uh, if you didn't catch that, then uh, look in the show notes. But uh, with that, Emily and Justin really appreciate this conversation. Really appreciate you guys uh, being real with uh, some of the, the more difficult questions that I was asking about today's environment. So, um, yeah, uh, we look forward to catching up with you in six months or a year when all this is over and there's kind of a, a new playing field. That's good, Mark. Yeah, we really enjoyed it. 
It was fun. Yeah, uh, you are I, there, with sincerity that you you're the way that you ask questions is uh, it's, it's it was a fun conversation. So thank you for that. My pleasure.